0: Thanks for joining us today. We're taking a couple weeks off, so this is a rebroadcast of an earlier show. If you want to listen to past episodes, go to Working9toThrive.com. That's with the number 9. Hi, welcome to 9 to Thrive, a show about balancing work plus community plus creativity. I'm talking a lot this fall about homeschooling because so many families have to add that to their usual juggle of balance. So my guests this fall are homeschoolers talking about how they manage their time, their ability to think, and their ability to get done what needs to get done. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. Last week, I talked a lot about averages and context, and I found a great quote in the meantime that I love about context, and it goes like this. The only man I know who behaves sensibly is my tailor. He takes my measurements anew each time he sees me. The rest go on with their old measurements and expect me to fit them. Nowhere is that more clear than when you're working with kids. One of the things about growth is the way in which, particularly as kids, but honestly as human beings we do this our entire lives, not only as context part of it, but The idea that we grow into different people all the time and that things that were problematic are no longer. We'll often write this off very easily with each other saying it's just a phase. Sure, it's a phase, but what is the moment that it became a phase? And was it one of those things where it is clearly all the kid Or is it triggering a response in us that may make the situation worse or that we could are in a position to make the situation better? Or do we have any control over that at all? Now we're in that phase. There's a great word for what we often end up doing, which is catastrophizing. When we're in the middle of a phase, for example, a kid who's having a lot of temper tantrums and we feel like it's going to be like this forever. We feel like this because we're tired, we're annoyed, we wish this weren't the case. We feel like our relationship is suffering and we can't see a way out. But here's the thing. And, and I remember with my kids, particularly the ones that had learning disabilities, that became a thing that they got increasingly frustrated with right around the seven year mark. They knew there was something impeding them. They knew that the expectation and and yes, they went into school, but and came back out, but they knew that there was something that they should be doing and it discouraged them and it angered them and it caused a certain amount of temper around being asked to read or asked to decode or doing any kind of work like that. So we had a phase. So we ended up with this, you know, psychologists will call it a dance, where I ask you to take some time and read right now. You are resistant because you feel like it's not only futile, but it's hard, and it's it's a kind of hard that's not rewarding. You don't feel like you're getting anything from it. In fact, I talked about the Gardner Multiple Intelligences last week. This is one of the ways in which if you're not going through, if you're not leveraging the power of those intelligences that do come easier to a kid, then you just keep ramming against the hard bits, the rock, if you will. Like you keep kicking the rock. So when you're in a phase like this, you cannot see how that's going to end. And the dance is where you have these sort of pre-programmed responses and it's very, very difficult to pull yourself out into a different response. It's very, very hard to pull out into a neutral response. And that's human. That's going to happen. What's really interesting is to ask, especially when one of these sort of emotional storms is happening, is to ask from time to time, is this happening all the time anymore? And this is a really interesting moment in a relationship with a kid. There will be a point in a phase where this trigger doesn't set them off every time. They've figured out that maybe if they draw a picture or walk outside, or if they listen to it on audio first and then go back and read, they're, gonna, they've, they're starting to work out workarounds, but they haven't figured out how to do that every time. They're starting to outgrow the emotional response to this trigger but they can't do it every time how could they it's a it's a habit it's being unlearned relearned a change is happening we do the kids and most importantly we do our relationships a grave disservice when we act as if the trigger is never going to be different when we catastrophize when we act as if we're never going to be beyond this It's really important to periodically ask yourself in the middle of one of these things, does this happen every time anymore? Because chances are, after a while, it doesn't. And you can start giving that grace of, hey, we've been moving beyond this. In fact, a lot of times you'll know immediately, you'll know immediately that this is a trigger because you'll say to yourself, I thought we were past this. Instead of using that as a judgment of yourself or your family members, if instead you'll use it as an alert, wait, I thought we were past this. If you use it as a curiosity point, then you're much better able to say, oh, hey, growth has been happening and it's been in place and this is just a little setback but we're actually moving out of this and it will give you the strength to react differently to that kid it will give you the strength to ask more questions about what is happening right now that feels like we're being sent backwards and maybe it's not the right time maybe everybody has to calm down first maybe people have to take a nap or get some good food or drink some water or take a walk or Build a snowman or do something else first. But the basic idea is there, which is we've moved along what was different about this time. And is that difference anything that's, that needs help? Anything that needs my support? Or was it really just you are exhausted? You haven't slept for a couple of days. You said something. I said something. We ended up back in this place that we haven't been in for a little while. There is almost nothing so hopeful as that realization that, in fact, you're not doomed and your relationship doesn't have to suffer all the time, that, in fact, oh, this is a little setback. Oh, fine, those will happen. That's okay. This does not describe our relationship forever and ever. One thing that is completely fictional, except that it's one of those things that... It's, it's a fiction that you can make a reality... So I had three teenage daughters for quite a few years. And in my head, I made a decision that there was a scorecard and that there were a limited number of arguments that we could have. Big blowout fights, that there was a limited number. And it made it so much easier for me to not catastrophize and for me to give people grace and for me to give myself grace to say after one of these subsided... Well, that's one we won't have to do again. We had we had punched a hole on that one. We had <laughs> 10 massive arguments and the 11th one is free like at Starbucks. Funny thought, but it really made me feel like that was finite and that there would be a point where this really didn't happen anymore. And I got to tell you, it doesn't. Everybody grows up and off they go. But it wasn't productive to spend all that time feeling Bad about myself or bad about my kids or bad about our relationship. It was much, much healthier to feel like, oh, well, this kind of thing happens. Now, could I have used some of this stuff about better accommodating my kids? Oh, yeah. I learned the three questions late in my kids' development and I will give them to you good and early, I hope, which is Are you hungry? Am I hungry? Question number one. Question number two Are you thirsty? Am I thirsty? Question number three, did you sleep? Did I sleep? And if those three questions are not answered in a healthy way, we don't have this argument. And I only learned to do that boundary very late. I wish I had learned it earlier, but you know, it's a nice little present for you. And actually, I have found it incredibly useful in my life even since then. So that goes back to the idea of George Bernard Shaw saying, the measure of me as a man, that my tailor is the only. One who behaves sensibly because he retakes my measurements when he sees me. It's such a brilliant phrase, even with your measurements, right? You know, I talked about how sizes mean almost nothing and there is no average. But equally, you're going to be a different person next time you try on jeans. You may be lost a little weight. You may be gained a little weight. You may be, I don't know, if there's a million things, maybe you're wearing different kind of underwear. It's just things are going to be different. So the only one who really gets you is somebody who re-measures you. So that's something to keep in mind as we deal with this weird fall and try to extend as much generosity and grace to one another as we can. And I don't mean a literal measurement. I'm actually anti trying to decide measurements for a kid's learning. Really what I want to look at is growth and progress to a goal, to an agreed upon goal and competence, working towards mastery, working towards competence. But in the greater sense of measure, like, like to have the measure of someone to really feel like you have an idea of that person as they are. I do love this idea of like taking the measure of a person. You don't want to be thought of as your child self as an adult. And I say this as an adult woman who is the youngest of six. I don't love being treated like the baby of the family. Never have really. But it was inevitable. But you know, at this point, when I'm in my middle age, what does that even mean? Why would it be relevant? There is no more there's no more reason to be there except as sort of a pecking order. I don't love when relatives talk to me about ways that I annoyed them as a kid. I can't do anything about that. I was a child and therefore in some way was annoying. As in fact, children often are and certainly kids pretty much always annoy their older siblings that's kind of the way of things Uh, there's not much I can do about it I don't love being dragged back there and held to account for it like I never progressed I'm certainly not pestering my siblings all the time now to come and play frisbee with me for example so then why is this still an issue and I want to be sure that you understand that that's true for your kids too that as they drop Ways that were ineffective to get along. That should be noted, that should be celebrated. Equally, as you figure out ways that are more effective to get their cooperation, to build respect, to have a smoother, running household, that should be noted, and that should be celebrated. And the last thing we should be doing is saying, "Oh, you've always been like this, so this is what you're always." Like. That is not hopeful. And that is not helpful. We will never get to perfection, but we can try to work on smoother, more effective ways of being in relationship. Next up, I will be doing part two of my conversation with Allie Wicks Lim, who is an activist and community organizer who homeschools her two kids and does justice work and is just fantastic.
1: So I've never felt like I needed to say in third grade, they study anatomy. So we have to do anatomy in third grade or, you know, I, I feel like that that's not, it's not a productive way for my family to approach it. And, right. You know.
0: right. And it's not even consistent across town lines or county well, lines or state right. lines. Or
1: <laughs> right. No, I mean, that's the thing. Like, so in Massachusetts... You know, there's a civics lesson in fourth grade, maybe, and in, but in some other state, it's something different. So, and that's another thing I often tell people, like, you don't have to decide what your child's whole education looks like today, right? right. A lot of kids are in and out of school for different reasons at different times. They get yeah. the opportunity to go to Italy, or, you know, they have to have a surgery, or yeah. they're traveling, or they're moving. And, you know, parents move across this country to other states all the time. Schools are adept at integrating kids into a curriculum that they weren't in before. So it's, it feels like a false fear to to say, if my kid takes a month off or six months or a year off, they'll never catch up, catch up to what? right? Like, there's flexibility built into the educational system for a reason, and if I moved from Massachusetts to California and enrolled my kid in school, they would not have had the same lessons as the kids in their classroom the year before, and it would be okay and they would make it work. So it was helpful to me to think about I just need to decide what works for my kids right now. Yeah. And we need to do that thing until it stops working. And then we need to find the next thing that works for my kids right now. <laughs> and, um, you know, and it might not mean homeschooling forever and it might. You know, there might be some fluctuation, and that's okay for us. We've really kind of found a home in the flexibility that homeschooling offers. Yeah, uh, makes a big difference to us. And you know, I guess, I guess that that's a piece. Excuse me for just a second. Um, I don't know. There. <laughs> working i apologize i'm doing something <laughs> yeah i know that that's that makes it a nightmare to edit on your part i think it's upstairs or outside i i don't want to hear i'm sorry i want you to be I, no more, noise. More. Yeah.
0: <laughs> i mean it's kind of a, an occupational hazard given <laughs> that i'm talking
1: it's also i mean this is in a in a funny way like this is the reality right like this is it's messy and it's hard and you know when you're working earlier today perfect story I was on an organizing call and I was sitting in the driveway because I wanted to quiet. and the kids came outside and you know they're playing in the driveway but immediately they're like throwing the ball and bouncing it off the car or <laughs> making faces at me through the window and you know and so there I am trying to work and parent and figure out where there are they are in their day and like the things that they were supposed to get done and it can frustrating at times like it can absolutely feel at times like there's not enough of me to go around and um and I I can be frustrated with them that they can't stay out of the room for an hour while I'm talking to you or or whatever (laughs) but I think the other reality about it is we spend so much time together that I feel very um comfortable setting limits on them like I think if I spent I think if I spent an hour a day after school with them or dinner time, and that was it, it would be harder for me to carve out like those boundaries. But, you know, sometimes my friends will be like, how are you just sending them out? (laughs) I'm Like I'm with them all the time. Like I have no problem (laughs) telling them I'm not available Um, because they get a lot of me, maybe more than they want sometimes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, so yeah, so that actually brings up, I was, I was going to ask you about things like, um the effect of doing this on like your own self-growth as a parent and the relationship piece, because I think we build those relationships through management and that's done through time Mm -hmm. and the education piece, it can go as you were saying, either it's school at home, in which case you're taking a sort of domineering approach, assuming the kids aren't happy doing it. If the kids are happy doing it, then it's not a problem. But if you have to end up in this domineering approach, then you've eroded the relationships and you haven't learned so then the opposite is also true that when you when you avoid doing that when you sort of turn your back on that school at home there's a piece of like self self management and growth that leads i think personally because i've lived it but to deeper relationships
1: oh yeah yeah i feel like my kids know me as a much more whole person than they would otherwise mainly because you know they're here a lot right so they see me I don't. I'm. I'm not compartmentalized in their mind as, you know, mom versus adult versus partner to my spouse versus you know. They see me in part. They see me communicating with adults all the time. They see me uh, communicating with kids who are not them. They see me frustrated. They see me tired. They see me really excited about good news, like the moment I get it. It's not. It's not something where. I'm on a call at noon and I get good news. And then when I see them six hours later, I tell them about it, right? Like they see the organic and they see the disappointments too. And and I get those experiences with them. Like I I can tell, you know, right away what's going on inside them because I have all of that exposure and all of that time. So I do think think that they see me as more of a whole person for better or worse. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know as i mentioned like i i definitely uh i definitely give myself license to draw boundaries with them sometimes where i need to yeah. in ways that would be hard for me if i only had a really limited amount of time around them but um you know they know that organizing and activism is important to me and they know that if i'm trying to work on something you know that's meaningful I don't appreciate unnecessary interruptions, right? So they they always know that they can find me if they need to. But we've also had some really direct conversations about, you know, you did not need me in that moment. Like that's that's my time. I'm available to you most of the time. And when I'm not, you need to respect that. And I, I do think that's, that's easier for me because, because we put in so much time together. And it's important to me, you know, I don't know how big a role gender plays, but I am raising a son, right? And I want him—I want him to recognize uh, women as multidimensional people, and to honor, you know, the work that women do outside of their families, and mm-hmm. to not be raised with an expectation that, you know, his needs are the only thing in the room, right? right. So, so I think it's important to me sometimes to just get across you're capable of doing this for yourself and you don't, you don't need me in every second of everything that you do. Um, yeah. I don't know if I answered your question. I'm trying to, I'm thinking yeah, back. It was,
0: it was just about self-growth. It was, and, and relationships. And that is, that is a piece of it. I mean, that, that really is the sort of, one of the things about it, you know, all the time is, is parenting is a long game. Yeah. It's, it's not this week and it's not today. And it's not whether your toddler only ate French fries and wouldn't eat vegetables for two months it's the long long game and the long long game includes building a type of relationship that then is sustainable for him as an adult and for your daughter as an adult but also you know what i mean like these you're, you're sending them out in the world it's funny i i sometimes i feel like the older i get the more jane Austeny I get because <laughs> i feel like you should be able to be in relationship in a way that is right. um sustainable for both partners Yes, and yeah. that's a major job, which of course distills down to: Is he marriageable? <laughs> <laughs> Do, does he have ten thousand a year? Right. Um, <laughs>
1: right. I, I sometimes think about it. I remember when my babies were, when my when my first child, my son, was a baby, I was reading a Lolly Jay Lee book about breastfeeding, right, mm-hmm. and it, it said that the the breastfeeding relationship works for as long as it works for both mother and baby yeah. and I it's funny because I feel like I've applied that to so many things beyond breastfeeding <laughs> you know like I look now at uh I, I mean I look at that with homeschooling and I've said to the kids like this is an agreement we've made together and it works for as long as it works for both of us yeah but you have a responsibility to that too like sometimes if my kids are giving me a hard time about something, you know, I'll just say, I'm not going to fight you on this. Like e- you either join me in our agreement or you don't, it either works or it doesn't, but, but if it stops working for one of us, it stops working. Right. And, um, and I think that that's, you know, I mean, on the self-growth piece, there are absolutely things I don't have the space or time for in my life. That I wish I did. And I, you know, because I'm this hands-on trying to home at homeschool and do the work that I do. Yeah. Um, and so that can be a struggle and attention internally. And mm-hmm. as you pointed out, I look at it from a place of no one stage lasts forever, right? So when I had a toddler, I mean, I remember thinking like when my second child, my daughter, gave up naps, I thought my life was over because naps were like the time
0: the magical time
1: like, so now i have nothing until <laughs> now <laughs> my adult time it's like i wake up in the morning and it's it's a marathon, not a sprint and there's no end <laughs> in the and um that's so familiar but then there's a few years where like they need you constantly and then all of a sudden it's fine to say we're going to do quiet reading time like separately for an hour and um And at nine, she can do that. And so it's not, you know, it's very easy when you're locked in one pattern or in one stage or in one conflict or moment to feel like that's what you're going to do for the rest of your life and you're never (laughs) going to get out. Yeah. Forget about homeschooling. Just parent. My parenting journey has been so often about saying to myself, like, this is temporary and what's next? And, um, so I, I get when I get frustrated about I don't have as much time for my adult friendships as I would like, or I don't have as much time to develop the work I want to be doing, I also look at it as, you know, this is this moment. And in a year or two years we'll be in a really different moment. Wow. And two years ago we were in a very different moment. And it's it's all it's all fluid, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not
0: Yeah, it's funny. I I've often observed this with my own kids and, and my own sort of, I want to say bias, and I don't mean bias in terms of sort of the, um, general use of it, but you know, like your brain has blind spots that are built in Mm -hmm. biases. And one of them that I became aware of that this really, you know, resonates with was frequency, like frequency of behavior and my own tendency to catastrophize. But, you know, one of my kids might be in a place where they were, um, really easily frustrated by whatever things that, you know, I might or might not feel were important, but it wasn't really mine to, to judge. Mm -hmm. And then it was happening all the time. And I got to the point where it was like, Oh God, we're here again. And it would take me uh, like months to realize, Oh no, the frequency has subsided. I didn't even notice because every (sighs) time it happened, I felt like, I thought we were past this. (laughs) And and I remember just going, Oh my God, I've got to really look Yeah. like every time I have this response, every time I think that, Oh my God, I thought we were past this. Right. I'm going to have to like, go take myself for a walk, tell everyone around me to get out of the house and take, get a Mm -hmm. cup of tea or something, because I'm not noticing that it still triggers me, but it's not happening all the time. Once in a while, the stage is passing, and here right. I am, here I am coming down like you know a ginormous ton of bricks, which just makes this kid who's learning to self-regulate feel like there's no percentage in learning to self-regulate because when right. you do, and the frequency's less, they're all still getting just as mad at you. And I was like, oh, right,
1: <laughs> it's such a big. I've been there, and it's such a big. Oh. I- and I I also think like I don't know, I have this core belief that it is better to model the value of an authentic apology than it is oh, yeah. perfection for your kids. And so like I don't want my kids to think I'm perfect. It's a good thing I don't because like <laughs> Mission accomplished. Like, I blew that a while ago. But, um, but I actually like I, I intentionally want them to see me make mistakes and make repairs. And so like, when I've had those moments, like you're describing, um, you know, I have circled back and been like, you know what, I have to give you credit for the fact that it had been a long time since we'd gone down that particular road together. And, you know, I reacted to it because like, I thought we were done and I don't enjoy that and I don't want to keep doing it. But like, I should have held the fact that you've done so much better most of the time. And, and it's, so yeah, I look at those moments and I think it's so easy for us as parents to go down the rabbit hole of like, oh, we're here again. And like, now we're never going to be out this. this. <laughs> I actually think it's great for kids to hear us like, and to see us model some reflection, like taking space for ourselves, thinking about it, coming back to the conversation. One thing I'll say to my kids a lot is like, what I wish I'd said is this, like, if I think I said something too harshly, or I think I said something in a not particularly constructive way i'll say you know can i have a do-over like what i wish yeah. i had said is this because i want them like you were talking about are they going to be like spouse material and things <laughs> like that like, like, i don't want them to hold themselves to a standard of never making a mistake right that's not that's not attainable and um and I what i want them to do is have the skills to, to like recognize a mistake put their ego aside make it right do the repair find the language and and how better to teach them that than by doing it for them so yeah
0: if you're just tuning in you're listening to nine to thrive a show about work plus community plus creativity and right now i'm talking to ali wicks Lim, a community organizer and activist
1: Often I have friends say like, oh, I screwed up. And I'm like, no, you've created an opportunity to model growth. Like that's, that's, it. that's valuable. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that relationship piece of apologizing, I, I kind of feel like it can't be overstated. I only learned about um, the, the three-part apology in maybe a decade ago. And I wish I had known about it when they were younger, because I would do the parent say, you're sorry, sorry. And be like, okay, I mean, that is totally unsatisfying, but I guess that's all we're getting <laughs> is because of course, you know, a forced apology from someone is, is, um, right. usually is. worse. <laughs> yeah. And, and so now I'm just such a proponent and, um, um, and the three parts, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but the three parts are, um, ad- admitting, like stating remorse. You are mm-hmm. sorry. <laughs> not grudgingly <laughs> yes. and the second bit is to say for what very specifically yes. yes what it is you're you're sorry for I did do some of that I did do this technique I had read somebody did where they sat their little kids on a on the stairs and you mm-hmm. can't get up until you can tell me what you did wrong mm-hmm. not not your sibling right you what was which means after about five minutes, they start going, what did I do wrong? What did I do to you? What did do? And they start discussing it, which is at least a plus. But then the third one is to state how you'll avoid doing that same thing in the future. And then, of course, there is a little coda, which is follow through. But it is yeah. the three-part apology. And it's, it's become like this leitmotif where I see it everywhere. Like I got an MBA and we started talking about um, corporate screw-ups. Mm-hmm. And whether you can survive as a business after a corporate or an organizational screw up. And right. and the the difference is, can you do a three-part apology? Is it an authentic repair? And- a relationship. And do you know you're in the relationship business when you're actually trying to have clients or customers or you know, buying we, public?
1: We saw that really play out a lot with the Me Too movement, right? Like there yes. were a lot. There were a lot of bad, damaging apologies. The whole "like I'm sorry you felt that way" apology. Yes,
0: the faux <laughs> apology. The faux apology.
1: And then every once in a while, when you see someone model the real apology, what you're describing is the three part, which I like. I hadn't heard that language. Isn't that nice? Yeah, well, wow. it makes a difference, and it's impactful. And it's like I think that those kinds of things, you know, I try to imagine what it would be like if we all grew up having that modeled for us, right? right. And we weren't trying to muddle through our adulthood. Figuring it out as we taught it to our kids, <laughs> and yeah. I, you know, it's part of what inspires me as a parent to just say, like, how do I get these people to reach adulthood with with as as many skills as possible to just facilitate a happy, productive life, right? Yeah. Like an, another version of what you're describing, not in terms of apologies, but I remember when I learned the language, like, uh, that a complaint should come with a specific request for change. So, ah, nice. Yep. So I use quite a bit with my kids, which is like, don't come in and tell me I'm bored or I hate this or I this or I that, you know, like, what is your specific request for change? What are you proposing? Like, yeah. hold in something that shows me that you're thinking about how to make this better. And honestly, I think that that's part of that's part of how homeschooling stays sustainable for me is shifting some responsibility onto them. For me, not to always be the person solving the problem. So I'm, you know, I am the parent, and I'm happy to, I'm happy to be a significant part of solving the problem. Right. I signed up for that to be the parent, but I, I also really, oops, hold on, um, I also, sorry, my computer was telling me it was going to restart. But it's, <laughs> I also really believe in, you know, I don't want to hear all day, here's my problem, solve it, here's my problem, solve it, here's my problem, solve it, problem, solve it. and I want them to have that growth mindset of right. You know, I don't, I don't want to take a shower right now. I would like to take my showers at night instead of in the morning because I, you know, prefer to go to bed after a hot shower. Fine. Like I care that you take a shower somewhere within this 24 hour period. Right. Like, but, but don't like, I don't always want to be the one finding the solution. I think sometimes it's really good to, to train their minds to say like, I'm not enjoying this or something isn't working for me, what would work better? And come back with a proposal.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I just, the thought of that is so, it's so touching, which is a gift of agency. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. it's a little bit of a demand for agency, but then it is a huge gift
1: of yeah. agency. Um, yeah.
0: because... This is what would
1: work better for me. And sometimes they don't know. I mean, yeah. that's, like, obviously, if we always had the solution built into the problem, all of our lives would be a lot easier. And, you know, I'm, I'm fine with my kids saying, I don't, I don't know how to fix this, but I'm unhappy about this. But if that happens one out of three times, and the other two out of three, they've actually already thought about a solution, I think that that's productive. And I think that that's, like you said, I think that that's agency that, that otherwise, they're always looking to somebody else to, to fix. Yeah. The issue um but yeah I, I i love those kinds of shifts in mindset like the three-part apology or the um the complaint with request for for a specific requests for change yeah. that just wake me up to like yes this would work better for us
0: and well, then and just- it and it taps into and i actually just read a book called this and i loved it called the art of possibility Oh, I like that. It taps you right into the art of possibility. Like you practice the art of possibility at that point, which unless people are willing to all entertain ideas, Mm -hmm. you end up in cultures where only one dominant idea becomes the culture. But if you're, but, you know, but that's not the only, that is not the only framework that is not only that, I would say it's the worst framework. It's the one we live under, but, um, but it, is, it is not the only framework. And when we get out of it, we end up in really interesting, sort of supportable, sustainable places.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that's the thing is, like, I feel like we have this sweet spot where the kids are learning things that matter in ways that feel healthy, and I'm able to meet that need. And so a lot of my my thinking and strategizing is about sustainability. Like how do we make this sustainable? We, you know, sometimes the kids will say our friends went to Disney world. Like how come we don't go to Disney world? Our friends got to go on a big ski vacation. And, you know, I'm always happy to have those conversations and say like, well, if I were working full time and you were in school, specifically public school, because anything else would cost money. (laughs) Like, um, then we would have more money to save up and do something like that. But we are making these choices to make this sustainable instead. And that's a family discussion. And, and what's really, what's validating for me is that my kids have never once said, well, send me back to school. I want to go to Disney World. Yeah. Like they, they have always felt like, yeah, let's, let's make the choices that make this feel sustainable. Whether those choices are in how we spend money or in how we communicate with one another or how we prob- solve problems or, you know, whatever it is. They have buy-in for this idea of this is how we want to learn and, you know, we, we will work to make it work, um, which I feel really grateful for because, frankly, it would be too big a job for me to do on my own if they were not willing, happy participants, yeah. which is not to say that they're willing, happy participants every day, all day. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But yeah. I think, that, you know, overall, the buy-in is there. So,
0: yeah, yeah, which is super important. It's funny you should bring up Disney World because I always felt wistful about Disney World. And then uh, relatives passed away and we got a little bit of money and we had to talk about what we were going to do with it. And my, there were so many places it could go. And <laughs> I had this whole, I had this sort of feeling about, I hadn't expected to get it. And I looked around and I thought, I would rather not be dying of something to have a bucket list Mm -hmm. (laughs) like what if we just did the list yeah out of a bucket (laughs) we had it and we made this decision that we would go and even there i was kind of wistful like oh i just wanted to take you guys when you were little and really into Mm -hmm. the princess things and stuff and the consensus in the pool in january it was 85 degrees the consensus was they were like, we are so glad that we are. they were all teens. It was actually the last big trip we made before um, one of them went into school. And then one of them went off on her. A... it was just, it was just like this sort of moment, but they were like, we're going to spend, we're going to go till midnight tonight at Epcot. Yeah. And yesterday we just took, two of us took the bus back to the hotel because we were over it. But the third one, she was, they were like, you could never have done this. No. It was no. Much, and I remember being like, Oh my God! you're right! It's actually like way more fun for <laughs> all of us, including me, to right. not have to be worried about snacks are they were hungry? they went and got themselves some snacks. <laughs> this is great! It's so funny, isn't it? Like the places
1: where we think we've we've created a shortfall turn out to be like no, I mean, you look at it like. You know, you look at a, an amusement park, and the people who have brought the toddler, and the toddler's tired of screaming, and the ice cream is everywhere, and everybody's sticky
0: and mad. And you know, like- yeah, the the employees called one o'clock uh, right. the the stroller derby. Yeah. they called <laughs> it the stroller derby, and they were like, "Watch!" And you'd turn around, and you'd just see two hundred people booking mm-hmm. it for the gates That's to get my- home for nap. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, we're we're closing the place down.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I love that. I love that, and I love that kids can like give that kind of feedback. And yeah, I often think about like I think a weird term that we use in our culture is age appropriate, and obviously it has a place in terms of like material and books or whatever. But like you know, I've done some things with my kids that people would say. You know, oh, well, she's too young for that, or mm-hmm. he's too like. You know, we took. There was a time several years ago where we were gonna get flown to Arizona for a um a family, you know, meeting up with extended family. We, yeah. I felt like if if we're gonna get flown to Arizona, let's build in extra time and let's do some national parks. And um, but how do we make that affordable? Well, we bring backpacking equipment, and we bring like you know a cook stove, and we so. Long story short, I flew across the country. My partner had to stay home and work because she couldn't take off, you know, three weeks. I flew across the country with my, you know, then five-year-old and I guess 11-year-old. And, um, and I arrived like, with two giant duffel bags with like our camping equipment and you know we rented a car, and because all we had to do was rent the car and pitch a tent, it wasn't super expensive, but we spent right. these three weeks we covered five thousand miles, we covered all of these incredible like um parks we camped we uh, back
0: that's sounds like, wonderful
1: and you know I'd have my daughter in these hikes where she's like in the bottom of a canyon, and you know grown men are looking at her like, <laughs> "What is she doing here? How is she <laughs> doing this and you know i always i always looked at it from this mindset of nobody's told her she can't right like nobody's said to her this is for big kids so you shouldn't be here um and it has created this super resilient little girl (laughs) whose like default is of course i can do this like you know and i laughed because she came back and she went to one of these like nature classes for homeschool kids and and they were on a the, the teacher told me they were on a, a nature walk and a kid was really whining and complaining about being tired. And I guess she turned to him and she said, not like you're at the bottom of a Canyon or something. <laughs> <laughs> she, said, Never mind. she was like, what are you complaining about? This
0: okay. is bad. get some perspective.
1: <laughs> and so I look at it and it's like, you know, someday, someday they're going to look back on their childhood and be like, is it weird that like I backpacked to half dome 17 miles? <laughs> yeah like that's an unusual thing for a six-year-old to do but it doesn't cross her mind that she can't and she right. enjoys it. And I think that that's a gift that I'm really grateful for like I get so much time with them that I know them really well and I know yeah. their capabilities and I know what's too much and and you know it might not be what conventionally looks like too much, but I can, it gives me the freedom to give them experiences that they wouldn't have if I was following the like, you know, hikes to over on. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Oh, that's terrific. Well, thank you. Thank you, Allie Wixlim for being with me today. This was a really delightful conversation. This was really fun. Thanks for having me. As human beings, we're well-wired to be aware of our environments. And one of the things I find really helpful as a human being with all sorts of neurodiverse people is doorways. Doorways are a transition point, and it's always a transition time to go through a doorway. So if you are a person who ends up with a lot of forgetfulness, a lot of scatterbrained, feeling disorganized, feeling chaotic, you're not accomplishing something as a human being, And that these things should be simple. They shouldn't be simple. They are what they are. But I'm going to advocate for the bump check. That's what it's called. In your mind, and you'll have to do this for six weeks to get this as a new habit. That's what it takes for human beings and dogs, for that matter, to learn a new habit. Think about the door. Put your stuff near the door. There is the wallet, there's your keys and there's your phone. That's usually the big three. You can pretty much do anything if you have your wallet, your keys, and your phone. So what you want to do at the door, with the door open on the threshold, is the bump check. So you want to imagine it a couple times first, and then you want to put it in practice, even if you just do it for pretend, and you say out loud, bump check, and you check for your wallet, pat where you put your wallet, check for your keys, hold them in your hand, check for your phone, and now you can leave. Try it. Try the bump check. There's something really nice about it as a ritual, and it will make some of your leaving times easier. One truly effective tool that I had as my kids were growing up was the calendar, which I will call the leaderboard. It's a specific way of creating a calendar to minimize the amount of law degrees you have to have as a parent. <laughs> we know that we are called to adjudicate nonstop disputes between our kids. And kids have a very finely attuned sense of injustice and right and wrong. Maybe they get some things wrong here and there. Maybe they're mistaken, but they really value that things are equitable or fair and drag parents into making a judgment on this around the clock. Multiple kids, kids with their friends, who gets what, which is fair, whose turn is it? All that kind of thing. So there's this calendar that when mine were three and one and I didn't have my youngest yet and I implemented this calendar, and there has never been a day that I did not thank heaven for this calendar, for the leaderboard. And the way it works is this. For my kids, I put their initials on every single day of the year. So first one, second one, third one, first one, second one, all the way through the year. I have seen other people do similar versions of this where they give a kid a day, you are Monday, you are Tuesday, you are Wednesday. I find the biggest flaw to that is that Tuesday kid will always be the taco dinner, for example, or will always be the one who is trash day. There are things in that that don't work out well, whereas having, and some of my guests have seven kids, so maybe that would, maybe you'd have to make it the days of the week, but You really want to randomize it. You really want to make it so that a kid's day does not fall in the same place every time. And there's two reasons for this. One, that thing I just pointed out, which is that you might end up with a kid who just is always on the hot seat for something, and that's not right. But the second thing is you want the task of sending kids to the calendar. And here's how the leaderboard works. So everybody's initial, the kid's initials are on every single day of the year. 365, 366. On this day, you have two kids and they're arguing about whose turn it is to sit by the window in the car. So the one question you as a parent have to do, and I would suggest you not actually do this task. You tell them to do it. Look at the calendar. Whose day is it? I want to be the hat in Monopoly. Whose day is it? Everything can be adjudicated by whose day it is. And maybe not everything, most things, the vast majority of things. This clears up your own time so effectively, it's hard to overstate. So the person whose day it is, is first for everything. And that's why it's not good to put it on like a regular Tuesday or something like that. So in other words, if today is Junior's day, then Junior gets the window seat that they like. Junior gets the mug that they like best. Junior gets to pick which chores of the open chores that he gets to do. But Junior is also the one that's asked to help me unload the dishwasher. Junior is the one who's asked to take the dog out. So in other words, you're first for everything. You can decide how you want to do this, but usually I made it first for everything. So you were the first one to have to get ready for bed too, but you got to choose what book we read or what stories you read. So you had some extra time with me. So there's this whole thing about everything goes by. Whose day is it on the calendar? Now, some small Adjustments might be made around something very special like a birthday. But mostly it wasn't. We did have a birthday rule which said you never had to share on the day that you got it. That day is your day. It's your special day with the things you have, and you do not have to share on the day you got it. So that would sort of overrule that whose day is it. But so many fights were eliminated and minimized by whose day it was. And the kids saw that it was inherently equitable. Today is not my day, and I'm really bummed about that, but I am second in line. Tomorrow's my day, so I'll get the second pick of what's left. But also, the day after tomorrow is my day, and I'll be first in those things. They get that at incredibly... I mean, at 3 and 1, my kids got it, when it was just two of them on the calendar. And that was pretty funny because... They were toddlers at the time, right? Three and one. The one-year-old didn't have too much that she was being asked to do, but it was a really great way to ease her into citizenship in the family. What I loved about it is that when it was the youngest's day and the oldest wanted to have her way, I would say, here's a... Yesterday was your day and tomorrow is your day. So you have twice as many. Now, this isn't a trick that works very long. It's pretty much like breaking a cookie and telling a toddler they have two. It doesn't work for long, but I will tell you, it works for long enough. And pretty soon they were into it and they would check cooperatively. And we didn't have to push back or fight on any of that anymore. Do we have our disagreements? Absolutely. Of course, every family does. But why not relieve? everybody of like most of them especially the trivial ones the ones where you go oh man who cares who gets the bendy straw who well they care and there's nothing wrong with caring when that is the biggest thing in your life at six but if you know that there's a system that's basically equitable and that you can check yourself then the whole bendy straw thing doesn't become an out of whack temper tantrum, full-on emotional outburst because, eh, yeah, that stinks. And tomorrow you'll get the bendy straw. So I would suggest doing this. It's very easy to do on a paper calendar, but it's not much less easy to do on on an electronic calendar. The reason it was nice to do on a paper calendar is for kids that are too young to really use electronics effectively to look things up. It was great to be able to look at the wall. I used a free bank calendar. And it did happen that sometimes your birthday was actually somebody else's day. And you might make arrangements with them to switch off for their day. That could be a little bit of a thing that's done. But that was so rare. I talked a couple weeks ago about the Parteo Principle. It takes care of 80% of issues. so. That'll give you a good break. And that will give you, what it'll do is give you, it'll help you reclaim your time. Time that's spent not fighting is time spent doing something else pretty calmly. Or if you're not calm, go find a pillow to hit or some running to do or uh, some leaves to jump in or snow to jump in or something like that. But it lets the relationships be preserved and it lets the peace of the house sort of a default piece, which is, this is something that is up for negotiation, but there's already a system in place that tells you how the negotiation is going to proceed. Unless it's bigger than that, and that can be dealt with. There's the 20%. Those are the pieces that really need better attention. So that's the leaderboard, and I cannot recommend it enough. I went to a talk once by a mediator on kids in conflict, and he said, you know, we always frame conflict as bad. It's not necessarily, right? It's a very good skill. Negotiation's a phenomenal skill to have one some of us, you know, spend adult lives pursuing because we didn't get it as kids. And being able to understand how it works is phenomenal. Being able to understand how to navigate conflict without I don't want to say without anger, because sometimes anger is useful, but without an emotional toll on yourself or without destroying a relationship and without toxicity, right? So being able to do that is a really great adult skill. And this guy was saying, you know, consider conflict to be a valuable way of learning about the world, learning where its edges are, learning where other people end. And this talk was really fascinating. After it was done, I went up to him and I said, okay, so we do this leaderboard system. And now I'm a little bit concerned that I'm robbing my kids of the chance to figure things out and negotiate. And he said immediately, oh, no, 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 keep doing what you're doing, because that takes care of that 80% of trivia, that 80% of pointless arguing, sport arguing. And it makes it so that the 20% becomes arguments and conflict that you actually learn from. And I'll leave you with one tip that I absolutely love, which is when there is conflict. I couldn't send my kids to their rooms. They shared a room. So that just made it happen there. What I could do is send them to the stairs and ask them to stay there, not for a time out for however old they were. I did that when they were younger, but then I learned this way of doing things, which is you stay on the stairs until you can tell me. And you can tell the other kid what you did wrong in this situation. So in other words, someone may very legitimately be angry because the other person stole their book. And then they hit them. So what I want to hear from kid number two is, I hit her. And what I want to hear from kid number one is, I stole the book. I want to hear the parts that went into this. And then after that, we can do sort of that three-part apology, which I've talked about before and I'll, I'll talk about again. The, the basic idea is you have to be able to express remorse, express in detail what you did, and that's that piece, and then how you will avoid doing it in the future, and then the bonus is then you follow through. So that piece, though, of being able to say, what did I contribute to this conflict? That is what you learn from. That's a valuable lesson. But even with that in place, if you can get rid of the dumb arguments by just saying whose day is it, all the better. And by the way, I kept that system in place until everyone went away to college. It just was easier. And I hardly had to, I hardly had to enforce it at all. It just, if it's up for debate, then it's up for whose day it is. Thank you for joining me this week. Can't wait to talk to you next week. Be well. That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com, that's with the number 9, to access show notes, find resources, and join the conversation. Thanks for listening.